Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you now with open minds and open hearts, ready to receive your word. God, I pray that you would move in us even now as we listen to you. And I pray that you will bridge the gap between our minds and our hearts, that we will more further be affected by you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm not sure if any of you were like this, but when I was a kid, I prayed about the weirdest things. Like a lot of children, I believed that praying was sort of equivalent to making wishes. There were the usual things, like we blessed the food and now it's edible. Uh, I guess before it was a bit dicey, but now it's safe to eat. Or when we'd go on long car rides, we'd have to pray so that we would make it safely to our destination. Otherwise, who knows what could have happened. The wheels might have fallen off the car or we might have landed in a ditch or something. But my specific prayers were a bit more strange, I would say. I can't tell you how many times I prayed for superpowers. It was often, and it was usually asking if I could fly. I'd also pray to win at video games that I couldn't beat. I even remember praying once and asking God if he could make my toys talk like Buzz and Woody from Toy Story. We've all been around children that pray for hilarious things. Lots of dinner tables and bedsides have heard the absurd requests that children think to pray about. There's a sweetness to that and innocence. In their curiosity and wonder, nothing is off limits to be prayed about. And all these things, strange as they may seem, they're praying. Sadly, though, there is a point when we lose that childlike structure in a prayer. We begin to think that special moments or certain times are more prayer appropriate than others, and that God should not be bothered with such trivial matters as laundry and bills and soccer games. And if we're honest with ourselves, we might have lost this unhinged imagination that children have in their prayer lives. We've also lost the unrestrained nature of our own childish devotion. At some point, prayer becomes bookends in a service to help with awkward transitions. A thing muttered half-heartedly before the family Christmas dinner. Or simply an, I'll pray for you, spoken to someone with no intent of actually doing it. Like most things in our lives, Prayer can become transactional and restrained, forgotten even. And to this cultural failing, James 5, 13 to 18 has a few things to say. For a little over five months, if you can believe it, we've been working our way through the book of James. Now we near its completion. This letter is clearly meant for a people with their backs against the wall, facing all manner of difficulties and hardships. We've had to do some real work in the pew with these sermons, being honest with ourselves that we do not struggle in the way that these early Christians did. We have struggles and problems, surely too many to count, but we cannot claim that we are a persecuted people, nor are we a destitute bunch. From where I'm standing, everyone appears well-clothed and groomed. And congratulations, you don't smell too bad either. Compared to the Christians being addressed in this letter from James and most of the world now, we're doing all right. We may not have to work as hard to contextualize this passage as we did in weeks past, but a little refresher might help. James is writing to a church that was chock full of troubles, divisiveness, intolerance, favoritism, and the desire for wealth and status to name a few. To worsen the problem, false teaching had crept into the community supplanting the supremacy of a Christ-focused life 
to one that looked no different than the culture around it. To be rich and powerful was the end goal of all life, and anything else was sad and unsuccessful. So the purpose of this letter was to address these issues head on, to meet them on their own terms, and James did just that. These last five months, we have heard the way that James attempted to shoot down the cultural narrative of his day, calling for joy and suffering to flee from entanglement and sin, and that the poor have inherited righteousness. It was countercultural then, and it is countercultural now. And it should be said that largely the focus throughout the letter up until this point had been on action, what one can do to overcome the false narratives of culture. This focus on what to do and how to live is what many struggle with when reading this letter. Too much working, not enough gospel. You might recall from earlier sermons in this series that the reformer Martin Luther fell into this camp, famously calling James an epistle of straw. At the time of writing that, Luther felt as though there was a works-based accent to the letter, somewhat downplaying the eternal security found through salvation in Christ. And I understand such an argument truthfully, except for the inclusion of James 5, 13 to 18. It changes the game and reframes what came before. And for my money, it's the most important section in the letter and not just because I was asked to preach about it. Simply put, these verses are about prayer. It's important to pray. We've done lots of it in the service already. Praying is good. James tells these Christians to pray when they suffer, to pray when they're well, to pray when they're sick, and to pray when they need forgiveness. There's even a communal element, calling for the elders to pray with the sick and for Christians to confess their sins to each other during prayer. James is saying, in all these things, pray. But why is prayer good? Why does the letter call for it? For many of us, it's a bit like taking ibuprofen when we have a headache. We can't explain how it works, but the headache goes away. Or like filling up the gas tank when the light comes on. We're not sure how it makes the car go, but it keeps us from stalling out on the highway. We know we're commanded to pray, and it seems to do something, so we do it. But what is it doing exactly? Theologian David Nystrom has this to say. James is well aware that life and perhaps especially the Christian life, is one in which we experience trouble. And in such a way that we may feel tempted to call the goodness of God and of our fellow human beings into question. In such times, James advocates neither anger nor stoic resignation, for the former poisons the spirit and the latter dulls the mind. Instead, he advocates prayer. It is a response that allows us to be active and positive and keeps us in communication with God. In some ways, this section on prayer at the tail end of the letter from James is a response to the call for action in its earlier parts. James is saying to these early Christians that whatever they are experiencing life as they seek to follow Christ, be it suffering, joy, sickness, it should be done in communion with God. In the whole of this letter, there is a strong charge to engage with culture and to seek its redemption for the sake of the gospel. James 1, 22 to 25 says, but be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and 
on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. There is action, movement, forward momentum in this. Such forward momentum and engagement will inevitably bring all manner of difficulties and hardship in life. All of you can attest to the hurt that human life brings, all the more so when it is done in relationship with others. We will be hurt and we will feel pain. Like James 1, 2 through 4 says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face various trials, consider it all joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance complete its work so that you may be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. James doesn't say if you face trials. He says whenever you face trials. It will happen and is already happening. All of us to varying degrees have suffered in this life. COVID-19 has decimated our communities, isolating us from each other and killing our loved ones. Our children grow up and choose different paths, forsaking the gospel and living in such a way that brings pain to the family. Marriage partners are unfaithful, throwing pain and sorrow and feelings of inadequacy into a place where there should be only love and acceptance. Cancer comes, stealing away the body and the mind and taking those whom we love away from us all too soon. I think you get the picture. Like in the verses I read from chapter one, James is not advocating a prayer for the removal of the cause of trouble so much as so much as for strength to endure the present troublesome situation. Recall what James writes in 5, 13 to 15. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. This is not a picture of works righteousness. This is a picture of utter reliance upon God alone. These prayers are essential to life in Christ, not because of what they can accomplish, but because of who God is and what he is doing in the lives of who cry out to him. Nystrom, the theologian I quoted earlier says, when we wait before God, as James says, he allows us to see what he is forming in us. Prayer is the necessary discipline. This is not prayer as a transaction between God and people. It is not a request for God to fix all the problems and wipe away the difficult things. Prayer is resting in God's promise that he is active in life's situations so that we do not go at it alone. Romans 8.28 says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And also Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So no, the book of James is not built upon works righteousness. It is built upon a theology that God is active in the lives of his people and the world. And that by resting in his presence through prayer, we might better understand this work he is doing. 
Prayer is not the removal of pain, but the way through it. There's a triumph in suffering, but it must go through suffering and not around it. Suffering is unavoidable, and prayer is the only way through. I'm reminded now of stories from the frontier of the American West. In the harsh winters, the farmers and townspeople would tie ropes from one building to the next, from the house to the barn, or from the town center to the sheriff's office. Blizzards would come with biting cold teeth that sank into the bones, and snow so thick that seeing past one nose was considered lucky. Travelers caught out in these storms would meet untimely ends, frozen and aimless, treading the same circles over and over again in the confusion and onslaught of the winter storm. The prepared and disciplined farmers and townsfolk did not suffer such fates, though. The ropes they had tied between buildings were their lifelines, as they held onto them through whatever the storm threw their way. It did not mean that they weren't also battered and freezing and without their vision, but it did mean that they had something to hold on to that they could trust in to show them the way. Prayer is a lot like this rope between the buildings of frontier farms. It does not eliminate the blizzards of life. It does not make us comfortable or take away the difficulty of existence, but it shows us that God is with us and guiding us, that whatever wind may blow our way, there is something sure and true to hold on to to find our way through it. After all, Jesus Christ himself is our great high priest at the Father's right hand, while the Spirit himself ensures and groanings too deep for words that we are in communion with God Almighty. Hannah Moore, a key player in the abolition of the slave trade in England in the 1700s, had this to say about prayer. With a pedigree like that, I think we can trust her. It is among the mercies of God that he strengthens servants by hardening them through adverse circumstances, instead of leaving them to languish under the shining but withering sun of unclouded prosperity. And they cannot be attracted to him by gentler influences. He sends these storms and tempests, which purify while they alarm. Our gracious father knows how long the happiness of eternity will be for his children. Far too long our prayers have been seen as a transaction between ourselves and God. Restrained, fettered to particular times and places. James helps us to see that it need not be so, should not be so. Like a child praying without bounds or strictures, so we too should approach the Father and be assured that he is working in our lives and our situations, shaping us into Christ-likeness. So remember this, when a child is born, pray. When graduating school, pray. When going on vacation, pray. When reading a beloved book, pray. When having an argument, pray. When nursing a cold, pray. When eating a meal, pray. When getting chemo, pray. When watching the sunset, pray. When celebrating life, pray. When nearing death, pray. In all these things and more, pray. And be assured that God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, hears you, loves you, and is active in your prayer with you.
You can weather the storms and the calm, for Jesus Christ himself is interceding for you by the Spirit even now. So take heart, pray, and live in God's world with confidence that he will see you through it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.